note that today's episode includes explicit language, discussions of sex and sexuality, and a warning that this episode will discuss explicit sexualized violence, medical violence, forced sterilization, and eugenics. I subscribe to this thing called Passion Books, and they make uh, erotic um, movies for women, and it's all ran by women, and it's all based on romance novels, and I am a romance novel junkie. So, you know, some of the, they're, they're rated on this thing called the barometer of naughtiness. So one day, I was watching one that was rated not safe for work. And I told the nurses, I'm like, I'll go watch this movie. It's not safe for work. Uh, can you close my door, please? And they're like, of course we can do that. And I'm like, cool. And then, uh, I was watching this one movie one time. And there was some kitchen stuff happening on counters and stuff. And the nurse just like walked right in while they're doing the thing on the TV. And I was like, oh, hi. Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions. Access to sexuality is an important way to understand the history of institutionalization and its ongoing impacts on the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I was 18 the first time I was in a psych ward. I remember giggling with another patient about the lore of the conjugal room. Did it exist? Did you have to book it? Was it literally just a bed? I asked the nurse. Her face turned bright red. She gave me a lecture about ability to consent. In retrospect, pretty funny. I hadn't consented to being there in the first place, so why was she so concerned about this? Conjugal rooms are rooms, generally in prisons and hospitals, set aside specifically for sexual activity. It turned out that psych ward didn't have a conjugal room. And the look of horror on the nurse's face made it pretty clear that this wasn't a question to ask. But as I giggled, the wheels started churning. I started out my work in disability researching sexuality policies in these places. The places you don't really have a choice in being there. Places like prisons, 
like psych wards, like group homes, and like Vicky, long-term care homes. You heard Vicky at the top of the show. She's 30, unwillingly living in a nursing home in Nova Scotia, trying to watch porn in her room. Her access to sex is limited because she lives in an institution. We'll get back to her in a bit. Today, people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities too often are forced into institutions as a result of failures to fund housing and access to supports. Being forced into an institution where you don't have privacy, where you're stuck in a single bed, where you're not allowed to have partners over, is but one way that access to sexuality, reproduction, and intimacy are controlled. And it's one that stretches back. Here's Dr. Alan Martino, a researcher and instructor at the University of Calgary. People in institutions were segregated in multiple ways. Uh, they weren't able to you know, build connections in the community. They weren't able to form relationships and, and have experiences that a lot of people outside of institutions would have. You know, when we look at the history of Canada and other countries, the ways that we have, you know, dealt with, in quotes, the sexualities of people with disabilities is quite bleak. There were actually cases of involuntary uh, sterilization in our country, and not only with people with disabilities, but also with Indigenous peoples in Canada and other social groups that are marginalized. Now, forcing people into institutions is one way that Canada has used to deal with the sexualities of people with disabilities. This is but one part in Canada's history of eugenics, deeply embedded in settler colonialism. Eugenics is the attempt to control the human population, to make it more productive, to improve the stock and manage the population. Eugenics has been implemented in a few interconnected ways. Today, we're really gonna dig into institutionalization and its connection to forced sterilization. Now, the history of eugenics and reproductive injustice have particularly targeted indigenous women and women labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And maybe history is an overstatement. Coerced sterilization of Indigenous women has been reported as recent as 2019. And coerced sterilization of labeled people has been reported frequently in the last decade. We have a history of institutionalization, ways of controlling, uh, surveilling the sexualities of people with disabilities. And I think the saddest part is that we continue to see some of those practices still happening. And the nurse just like walk right in while they're doing the thing on the TV. And I was like, oh, hi. Um, and luckily, they were really like funny about it. They're like, oh, what are you watching? You know, and then they stood there 
And like we laughed about it because the nurse thought the dude was hot. So she was like, oh, I'm going to stay here for a minute. And, um, you know, we joked about it and we laughed. But that was a little awkward for me. Now, sex is often a taboo subject to talk about. But this is even more so the case for people with disabilities, especially the label of intellectual and developmental disabilities. Because although explicit eugenics policy isn't legislation anymore, it's still apparent in the policies of institutionalization and in our social understanding of disability that asexualizes and infantilizes people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It extends by not having access to supportive decision-making and instead having decisions made about you. I think about a recent story covered by Kelly Egan for the Ottawa Citizen. Sherry Bratchfield had her wedding all set for December 29th. The venue, the dress, the ring, a man she loved. But the Ontario Guardian stopped her wedding by refusing to allow her to move out of her group home. So today we're going to talk about sex. And by doing so, we're also going to talk about some darker things. Eugenics, sexualized violence, and sterilization. Now, across Canada, provincial policies varied with regards to sterilization and eugenics policy. In places like Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia, there weren't explicit sterilization policies. Instead, eugenics took place through the use of institutions to remove people from their communities and sexually segregate them. As one report of the Ontario government reminds us, So keen were the officials that there be no possibility of sex or propagation by these deviants, that upon death men and women were sometimes buried in separate burial grounds. Now, Alberta ran a different kind of terrible. A massive, active eugenics program that operated mainly out of one institution in Red Deer, Alberta. That, like most institutions, has had a few different names over time. The Provincial Training Center, Deer Home Alberta School, and today, the Michener Center. When it opened in 1923, it was a single building with 108 people. By the 1970s, there were more than 2,000 people incarcerated in this massive site of 66 buildings. We're gonna hear a bit more about this institution and its place in the history of eugenics in Canada with People First of Canada's The Freedom Tour and Dr. Claudia Malacrida, a professor of sociology and author of several books on disability, health, and the body. 
But the one we're really diving into today is a special hell, institutional life in Alberta's eugenics years. In this book, there's rare interviews with former inmates and workers, institutional documentation, and governmental archives. Claudia Malacrida helped shed light on Alberta's history of institutionalization and eugenics. As a researcher, she has focused on historical eugenics, but also its connection to present-day restrictions on disabled people's sexuality and reproduction. Here she is. BC's history of sterile involuntary sterilization was much more covert than in Alberta. Nellie McClung was the first judge in Alberta, and she had the portfolio of family uh, services. And these women did, they were liberal, uh, and they were progressivist, and they did believe in the improvement of the human race. And they lobbied hard for um, legislature that would protect children, which often meant removing them from their homes, and for legislature to improve human stock. So maybe you've heard of Nellie McClung, but let's hear from her. Here's what she had to say in her lobbying for the sterilization of children. To bring children into the world suffering from the handicaps caused by ignorance, poverty, or criminality of the parents is an appalling crime against the innocent and hopeless and yet one about which practically nothing is said. Marriage, homemaking, and the rearing of children are left entirely to chance, and so it is no wonder that humanity produces so many specimens who, if they were silk stockings or boots, would be marked seconds. So you can hear there just how fully of a eugenicist Nellie McClung was advocating for sterilization, advocating that disabled children are burdensome and broken. McClung and her famous five kindred advocated for a kind of feminism that was rooted entirely in white supremacy. And she's not the only famous Canadian part of this. Here's Dr. Malacrita. A lot of these social reformers were, um, as we know, like Tommy Douglas, you know, who was pro-eugenic, um, were racist, who were worried about the influx of immigrants who were overbreeding and the middle classes who were ceasing to produce at those same rates. Just freak people out. Yeah, that Tommy Douglas. I mean, to be fair, his master's thesis was titled the problems of the subnormal family. Okay, back to Claudia. So there was a lot of lobbying in the teens and 20s. And finally, in 1927, 
Um, there was a bill put forward, the, uh, the Sexual Sterilization Act. Um, there were protests against it, but uh, what it essentially did was it um, enticed people to voluntarily undergo sexual sterilization. It was passed really uh, quickly without a lot of debate in March of 1928. And I think that social reformers really thought there'd be a bit of a, you know, a, a charge to try and uh, get yourself sterilized because it would give you a better life, blah, blah, blah. Here's some newspaper articles from Alberta at the time, collected by Dr. Rob Wilson for the Eugenics Archives. Link, obviously, in the show notes. <clears throat> January 3rd, 1927, in the United Farmers of Alberta. Resolutions for Resolutions Women's Convention, for women's convention deal, with deal with important issues. Feeble-minded. For UFWA convention, segregation or sexual sterilization? Sterilize the feeble-minded. And these eugenicists thought in earnest that people would line up to get sterilized. People did not, you know, storm the gates to get sterilized. And so um, with the uh, with the voting in of the Social Credit Party, which was very socially and religiously conservative, an amendment to the act was, was proposed by Dr. W.W. Cross, the Minister of Health, and it passed. So a bit of a background on who this fresh social credit government was. Now, at the time... Alberta was led by radio evangelist Bible Bill Aberhart. This is the Calgary Prophetic Bible Institute broadcasting the regular Sunday afternoon program over Canadian station CFCM, the voice of the prairies. Known for his Bible Belt's fundamentalism, anti-Semitism, and creating an explicitly anti-science environment. It is claimed that we are mixing religion and politics. There is no sphere of our life in which religion does not play its very important part. The Social Credit Party was an explicitly Christian, anti-communist party committed to social credit theory. As a matter of fact, we've had rather more to say about economics than about politics. An anti-Semitic monetary theory that the folks at Alberta Advantage do a much better job of explaining. So in this environment, in 1935, major amendments were made to the act. It, it produced the Alberta Eugenics Board, who in the act became exempt from any civil action by individuals taking part in the surgical operation. So it basically legislated their impunity. Now we're going to get into some nitty-gritty, behind-the-scenes logistics of these powerful bureaucrats who are making decisions around life, death, and ableist violence. Things called guidance clinics were brought into being, and these were groups of doctors, nurses, health, public health nurses, social workers, and often um, family physicians or church leaders. They used to do like a little tour around the province once or twice a year and visit, you know, your local health clinic or your local, you know, family doctor and find out who was unfit, uh, who were often brought to the attention of, of officials who then would uh, work hard to convince people to surrender children. 
Once those kids were in the system, and especially once they were institutionalized, it became very difficult for them to avoid sterilization because of the ways that, um, that the eugenics board operated. Members of the eugenics board were also, they included people like the superintendent of Michener Centre, what was originally called the Alberta Training Hospital or Alberta School Hospital. Um, at, in Red Deer. So there was a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a conflict of interest, I suppose you could really say. Other members of the eugenics board included people from other institutions across the province. And a case would come before the board for, uh, for a hearing. And of the over 5,000 cases heard, there were really less than 100 that resulted in a negative decision. It was pretty much an inevitability that you would be uh, approved for sterilization. That didn't mean that you would actually necessarily be sterilized, but it, uh, it increased the likelihood, particularly if you had a consent form that signed over the right to make decisions about health to the institution itself, which is something that did happen regularly at Michener. Now, the reason that this happened regularly at the Michener Center was that these really were children, totally isolated from their families and potential advocates. When children came into Michener Center, their parents were advised not to um, come and visit for the first year. It would impede any progress that the institution was going to make on their training. So, you know, the kids who came into Michener Center were, were very young and often uh, not informed of what it was that was happening to them. I mean, some of the stories that people told uh, were almost cinematic. You know, it's like I'm I'm out in my dust bowl farmhouse and a black car comes up the the roadway and uh, out steps a lady with a and my mom comes out of the house with a suitcase and I get in the car and I never saw my family again. This severed relationship between communities had a really profound impact not only on the institutionalized person, but also their family and their entire community. Here's Teta, a survivor of the Michener Center and advocate for deinstitutionalization. I was in uh, Michener Center and right there for 20 years. At the age of 15, that's when I left my family completely. Um, I went to Mission Center when I was 15 years old, but I'll never forget. There was this great big brick building, and that's when I said goodbye to my family for a whole year. We could not see family for a whole year. I was really scared, but I did what they wanted, and I worked really hard. The family isolation that Teta shares is devastating. And it's not isolated from the experience of eugenics. 
In fact, Dr. Malacrita links them together. One of the problems with Michener Center, and I, I, I refer to it as a form of passive eugenics, um, was that it did separate people from their communities. So there's sort of ripples of trauma that have come out of, out of these experiences. These severed relationships expedited and permitted the violence against these children as they did not have allies outside to expose the institution and make it accountable for its actions. Because, of course, the institution nor the province were accountable for such violence. There was, um, there are many, many instances in the record of what are called uh, extraordinary events or unusual events, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and sometimes death, um, escapes that ended in death. From the archives that Dr. Malacrita excavated, X received X a received wound. a stab wound behind right ear, approximately one inch in length. Treated with cold compress and application of buttery bandage. Clinical noted, stitches given. Returned from doctor, 10.30 hour. Other memos included procedures on the appropriate use of RCMP search dogs, the composition of internal search and rescue teams, the proper chain of command for reporting escapes, and the procedures for billing various authorities for costs relating to these searches. We've heard this time and time again. These conditions were punishing, traumatizing, earth-shattering. So much violence. Now, I'm going to introduce you to some sisters in Alberta, Jude and Bonnie. My name's Bonnie Picard, and I'm Judy's youngest, younger sisters. Judy has um, two other sisters. Judy's the oldest in our family. Jude doesn't use words to communicate, so the doctors kept recommending to my mom, pushing my mom to put her into Michener Center. And so my mom um, did not want that to happen, but finally she did give in to the doctors and she put Judy into Michener Center. It was really built up for our family that it was be a nice place and then when it in reality it turned out to be one of the biggest nightmares of her life. You know, my sister lived with 65 other people in her bedroom in that in Michener and the door was locked from the outside. So there was lots of awful things that happened in those rooms at nighttime when um, when she was there. I think it's important to put those awful things that happened at nighttime alongside the things that happened in broad daylight. Forced sterilization. How it operated for people who lived in Michener was they would kind of hit puberty and it was wrote that you would go before the board and uh, if you didn't have somebody who could advocate for you, who, if you didn't have somebody who had to provide an individual rather than a blanket permission, you go. So uh, 5,500 cases, uh, 28 and, and change cases were actually um, uh, 
implemented with uh, involuntary sterilization. And most of those did come from places like Michener Center, where it was children who were intellectually disabled and without uh, without resources in the, in the community. Here's Bonnie again, talking about the medical violence that Jude experienced. So when Jude was uh, 24, they pulled all her teeth. When, when she was 17, um, they, they gave her a hysterectomy. They, they uh, sterilized her at the age of 17. Um, they ha- had said that, well, they didn't even tell us what, that she actually had that. We just read that in a report that that had happened, that she had been sterilized. But um, there was lots of reasons that we'd heard about afterwards. So that was a terrible, terrible thing that happened to her. Well, I think that the reason that they sterilized her was because there was a lot of sexual abuse happening in this institution by staff. To this day, Jude um, really still suffers very much emotionally from the things that happened to her in Michener Center. Um, she doesn't sleep at night. She just cannot sleep at night. She's very afraid of the dark. She can go three to four nights without sleeping. Now, I want to make clear the horror of Jude's story. Jude was sterilized at the age of 17 because of repeated instances of sexual abuse happening in the institution by staff. Her sterilization and medical abuse was used to cover the biggest nightmares. And this legislated impunity wasn't that long ago. The Sexual Sterilization Act was open for 50 years, until 1972, when the progressive conservative Peter Lougheed government explained that the government feels very, very strongly that the bill is offensive and at odds with the proposed Alberta Bill of Rights. And for some, the violences of the Michener Center haunted them for lifetimes across possible generations. She's constantly, I think, tormented by the thoughts of Michener now. Still, even if you mention the word Michener Center to her, she's upset for at least two days afterwards. She just is so, it has taken such an emotional toll on her. Um, I think that, you know, I always say her Down syndrome is not Jude's problem. She has these emotional problems that she deals with on a constant basis and still deals with those every day, the, the, uh, the horror of what happened to her in Michener Center. She's had her nose broken, she's had her knee um, kicked out from, like her knee was dislocated, somebody kicked it. Um, Lots of those kind of things have happened to her in Michener Center. She had lots of abuse. They're very unsafe places. I think that people are harmed. There's lots of abuse and neglect that still happens in those facilities. It It was just something you wouldn't do to your animals. It was just the treatment was unbelievable. These were places that were supposed to provide care. But people, children, 
were subject to torture, to solitary confinement, abuse, sensory deprivation, isolation. Here's Dr. Malakrita again. These people came to be profoundly damaged by the institution so that when Michener Center was opened as the training school, it was the intention that children would be returned to society by their 18th birthday. But of course, they were incapable thereof. So in the mid-40s, Michener Center expanded its facility and added another 2,000 adult beds. And so you have a population of children who come in and basically cradle to grave without hope, uh, live these lives. So it was a place from the people with whom I I spoke. Um, Nobody uh, wanted to go back. Very, very few positive memories and um, a lot of emotion in in the interviews, uh, you know, Uh, uh, reliving some of those experiences. I want to tell you about one more story, one that you should definitely read. Leilani Moore was institutionalized into the Michener Center as a child. When she was 14, the center told her she was having her appendix taken out. They lied to her. Years later, Leilani left the institution and got married. She was trying to become a mother when she found out that she was irreversibly sterilized. She was one of the 2,834 people in the Alberta Eugenics Program who were legally subject to sexual sterilization surgery. In 1996, Leilani sued the province of Alberta and won, inspiring other survivors to take the government of Alberta to court for its many violences of institutionalization and sterilization. But winning the lawsuit would not return her access to reproduction and motherhood. You can read and hear more about Leilani's story through the National Film Board film, The Sterilization of Leilani Moore, and in her book, A Whisper Past, Childless After the Eugenic Sterilization in Alberta. In 1999, after Leilani Moore won her case against the government, the Premier of Alberta apologized airing that they extend regrets for the actions of another government in another period of time. It's unfortunate. I mean, I won't say it's criminal. It was the law, but it was a bad law. That's a half apology. And that apology didn't end the impacts of eugenics in Canada. Here's Claudia Malacrida once more. I want to say that we know the numbers of people who uh, came under the knife as part of the Alberta Sexual Sterilization Act. But I believe strongly this is a tip of the iceberg. I think that Indigenous children 
had these things happen to them in Indian hospitals, as did uh, adult women particularly. We are uh, conscious of these um, these events occurring today, also in parallel kinds of forms between people with disabilities, profound physical disabilities and intellectual disabilities primarily, and Indigenous people, where hospitalization can be a very dangerous uh, event, where uh, consent is very loosely given. Although explicit eugenics policy isn't legislation anymore, it's still apparent in the policies of institutionalization. I, I think for kids, children and young adults or dependents who have intellectual disability, although it's putatively impossible to involuntarily sterilize someone, active eugenics persist uh, in the form of uh, decisions that are made around hygiene or she can't manage her periods, or that these relationships would be really dangerous. And I mean, I would argue that making somebody sterile can be a really good smokescreen for being a victim of sexual abuse for people with, with profound disabilities. Sterilization is a practicality. Sterilization is a smokescreen. And sterilization is an ongoing reality in Canada. Part of the living histories of eugenics policies and in our social understanding of disability that asexualizes and infantilizes people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Many of the old buildings of the Michener Center were blown up, but on the grounds of the Michener Center, group homes for labeled people were built and remain. The impacts of eugenics, of sterilization, echoing off their walls. And not too far away, a long-term care home in Red Deer boasts about having a wing just for young people. Shoshana and I spoke in November, 2020. I am an indigenous disabled woman from Winnipeg. I live at Riverview Health Center. I don't feel my needs are best suited living in a 388-bed facility. I wish that I could live in the community, like, where my friends and family can come freely and visit me whenever they want. And if, like, my husband wants to spend the night, there's just like space to be able to do that. Let's go back to Vicky once more to hear about how her long-term care wing impacted her love life. Uh, a lot, I know. Um, my friends tell me not to be, but when they come over my house, I'm embarrassed of where I live and I'm ashamed you know, those are things I worry about. Privacy, another thing I worry about, depending on who's on. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit more about the the privacy problem? Uh, well, you know, when somebody's door, like when you are in somebody's house, when you go to someone's house, you knock on their door and you'd be like, hello, can I come in please? And 
they, they, some of them are just not all of them, but some of them don't respect that. And they, because as far as I'm concerned, this room is my house. And if you are going to come into my house, you have to knock, you know? Um, so they don't always do that depending on the person. And it can be very awkward for me, especially, like I said, if I'm either in a meeting or, you know, girls got needs. So occasionally I watch erotic movies and uh, that can be awkward. So people ask me what we can do, how we can move beyond eugenics. And how can we support the sexual lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities? Well, I think ending institutionalization is a really great place to start. Robust movements towards reproductive justice must include people with disabilities and institutionalized people. Because it's about more than sex. But also, sex is great. Invisible Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio recording also by me, with production assistance by Kendall David. This episode was advised by the Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization with additional audio narration by Helena Grobath and Alex Johnston. Audio post-production and sound design were by Helena Grobath. And our theme music was composed by Bara Ladek. Special thanks to Claudia Malacrida, Alan Martino, Vicky Levac, Shoshana Forrester-Smith, Erica Dick, and the Eugenic Archives. To the wonderful creators and narrators of the Freedom Tour, and an extra special thanks to Leilani Moore, institutional survivors, researchers, and self-advocates. Talk soon.